You're listening to the Less Stress in Life podcast. Your hosts, Deb Timmerman and Barb Fletcher, are on a mission to help individuals and organizations manage stress and change. Together, they bring you real conversations, inspirational stories, and strategies to help move you from being stressed to feeling your best. Good morning, everyone. I'm Deb Timmerman. Welcome to our series of 52 Practical Tools for Less Stress in Life. This is episode 41. And I'm Barb Fletcher. Our goal is to give you tools and strategies to help you move from being stressed to feeling your best. October is Domestic Violence Awareness Month, and our guest is Susan O'Million. Susan is an attorney award-winning author, motivational speaker, and recognized national expert who has advocated to end violence against women for the past 40 years. In the 1970s, she founded a rape crisis center and represented battered women in divorce proceedings. In the early 1980s, she litigated sex discrimination cases, including helping to articulate the legal concept that made sexual harassment illegal in the 1990s. With the death of her 19-year-old niece, Maggie, who was shot and killed in October 1999 by her ex-boyfriend, Susan's work became more personal and immediate. Today, Susan is the originator and facilitator of My Avenging Angel workshops based on the idea that living well is the best revenge that can help hundreds of women who have been abused to take the journey from victim to survivor to thriver. Susan's books include a trilogy of self-help workbooks in the Thriver Zone series and three novels, the Best Revenge series, inspired by the true event of her niece's story. Welcome, Susan. Thank you. It's great to be here. You have quite a history working in the field of domestic violence and women's rights. How did Maggie's death lead you to the work that you do today? And how is that that you can take something so personal and make it now your life's work? That's a really good question. (laughs) Uh, I think I'm still trying to move through that journey. I think Maggie's death brought me to work that I don't think I would have gotten to without that happening, which sounds really awful. Like I, I didn't want what happened to my niece to happen, but I think that it's an opportunity that I had to move my work to a deeper level. Um, And I had worked with women for many years who had come through domestic violence and sexual assault. And usually, as you know, it's kind of a combination of trauma histories. You know, it's sort of the I work with women, their presenting problem may be a domestic violence relationship, but if you ask them two or more questions, you start to see a progression, um, usually starting from childhood. So there's a recognition that there's something deeper. uh, It's a deeper spiritual journey. And I don't mean necessarily religious, but the idea that your spirit, uh, a part of you that can't die, is immortal, can you know, goes through many struggles. And in those struggles, you have to figure out how to move through them. And sometimes we get stuck in those struggles. So I decided I wasn't going to get stuck when Maggie was killed. I decided that um, I was very angry and felt guilty about what had happened to her, that I had information that um, I could, and I couldn't save her. Um, 
And so I, I don't know. It, I think the other piece was that I, um, the man who killed my niece also killed himself. So I didn't have a member, I'm an attorney, I had that criminal justice kind of sense of, okay, somebody does something horrible like this, and you prosecute them and make sure he doesn't hurt somebody again. Well, that was sort of taken away, which was probably a good thing, because to go through the criminal justice system and get any kind of revenge is, or closure is the word people try to use, um, is probably not going to happen. Um, so... That's where I got living well was the best revenge. And that's what really took mm -hmm. me to that place. And so I was going to find a way to avenge her death that um, if I couldn't help Maggie and nobody could help Maggie, um, I was going to help somebody else um, mm -hmm. to take that journey that she couldn't take. And that's really how it evolved. I'm not a social worker. I'm not a clinician. So I didn't really have a sense of what that all meant in terms of what I would do. But slowly, the idea of working with women at that level through a workshop is where I um, where I started now, now, 20 years ago. You mentioned not being able to save Maggie. Were there signs along the way or were you trying to enlighten Maggie that there was an abusive relationship and she wasn't engaging or listening to that? Yeah, it was kind of a combination of things. He never physically assaulted her before he killed her. And um, although that's only one of the warning signs, it's usually the one that has the blinking red lights going off. Uh, Maggie was very smart. She knew about abuse. Um, she was also very, um, she's a problem solver. She was going to go solve this problem all by herself because the school, she was a, she was a college student. Um, at a very good college in the Midwest, actually. And um, they had nothing in place. This is 20 years ago. Um, there was the, when I got on the campus uh, after she was killed and handed out the warning signs to a group of young women, they all said, oh my God, everything on this list happened, but we didn't have words for it. Today we have more words for it. Today we have words like coercive control which has been something in the last couple of years, not only has come into the vernacular, um, but also into the law. Um, and so that kind of manipulation that he did. To her, and so she kept trying to let him, she broke up with him. She called it immature and he wouldn't let her go. And that, which is one of the warning signs. Um, I think the clearest warning sign was that he wasn't, he, um, he wasn't going to let go of the relationship and he was pushing the relationship too far, too fast. And she didn't know he had a gun. Um, supposedly, nobody knew he'd bought the gun except the gun store owner, who had no obligation to call the college and tell them that somebody with a college dormitory address had bought a gun. Um, and so she went there one more time, I think, to tell him to leave her alone uh, into his dorm room. And uh, he killed her and killed himself. So there were warning signs along the way, but they were much more subtle and I think because she thought nobody on that campus, which was probably true um, at the time, was going to help her because there were no bruises and no marks, that she had to solve the problem all by herself. Yeah, the marks aren't always on the skin, are they? Right. right. Yeah. So it was kind so of a confluence of things that made it clear that not only the ability to stop that, um, you know, laid in a bunch of people's doorsteps, but I don't think that that was what was going to happen in that moment. So, so the journey 
through identifying, you know, the, the victim to survivor to thriver. Can you talk a little bit about that? And is that a linear journey or does it sometimes circle back? What does that look like? Yeah, thank you. That's Some of this is based on my own personal experience, although like mm-hmm. I, I, my personal experience has been more through um, Maggie's experience or the aftermath of it, but also working with women now for 20 years. I, I, I work with them, I have a workshop and then I continue to work with them if they if they choose to come to a monthly so i've watched them some some as women over 20 years and not only the women but also their children i've watched their children grow up mm-hmm. so it's been really interesting because w- children who are witnesses of domestic violence um tend to either be perpetrators themselves when they grow up or victims so that's a journey in itself but i think i think it's non-linear that's a really good i'm glad you said that word because i try to use it sometimes with women um I don't think that we stay in one place. Um, I know today I'm thriving because I'm talking to you guys about the work I do, and this is great, but mm-hmm. I can push myself back. Uh, something can happen that will push me back. And sometimes it's, my car won't start. It's not like a big you know, spiritual mm-hmm. moment. It's just it's like, oh, God, another struggle here. Um, I also can pull myself. Uh, um, my niece was murdered in October, October 17th, so I know that date's going to pull me back. Maggie and I also share a birth date. We have the same birthday. Mm-hmm. So that pulls me back. So I always say that, you know, I'm going to be pulled back there. I just have learned how long do I want to stay there? Is it going to be 10 minutes to remember and mourn or just grieve it or just feel sad for a while or um, in terms of being pulled back into that grief? Or am I going to be pulled into the struggle that's going to you know, continue to make me feel like I'm not worthy and I can't do it, or am I going to keep moving? So I think I, I think you can't avoid being pulled back. Um, mm-hmm. But for me, it's more of like little life struggles. For the women that I work with, they're pulled back by litigation on child custody. Suddenly, right. he's going to decide he's going to pull back, and I want those kids, and oh, I'm going to make it crazy. So that pulls them back to that relationship and how you stay there for shorter periods of time, not only physically, like in the moment, but how do you, how do you readjust your brain so that um, you don't have that negative voice in your head saying, see, I told you, I told you, this is all your fault. Um, And you know, you're not good enough, not smart enough. So yeah. And for, I think the other thing about the journey is that when I, uh, when we come into the workshop, one of the exercises I do is to help them see that they're on a journey. They don't always see that they're on a journey. Um, they didn't. They think it's just about victimization their whole life. I've been a victim my whole life. Oh, you mean I I can do like do more than survive? So they tell me they're really good survivors, and and they pat themselves in the back. Isn't that great? You know, I'm like, well, that's a lot of energy. You know, going around that little circle, victim to survivor. Let's see if we can go over here and see what thriving's like. And they're kind of fascinated, like there's a word for it. And I want to go there and what it looks like for them and how, and I think also how it feels for them. So you guide them through a process and mention seven steps to Mm -hmm. thriving. How do you use those steps to help them move along that path and maybe just share those steps with us? Yeah. Um, well, there's seven steps. I don't know why there's seven and not eight, but, but somehow seven came to me. Um, I'm a writer. Um, 
more than anything and I'm a creative person. So I don't know. So, you know, sometimes th these things come to you. I don't know how all that came to me, um, but it was clear to me that um, there were things that had helped me even before Maggie was killed. And so then when I applied them myself, that I found that these are things that I was doing. I, there, there's also, I also devised or put together an exercise for each one of these steps. So the first step is see your journey, which is what I was just talking about, that just help the women see. I didn't know I was on a journey. Um, so it's it, every, I, I use story, I use uh, children's stories or fairy tales. As kids, we learn stories to learn lessons. And so we learned as very young children, depending on where you were and what your culture and what the stories were, um, we learned that there's always going to be a struggle in a story, in a, someone's life in a story. There's going to be a moment of transformation and there's going to be a, the happy ending. Um, I love, I love Cinderella. So it took me years to figure out why do I love Cinderella? Because she struggled and then there was this transformation. Her, you know, the pumpkin became the, the coach and the, the, rag, the rags became the beautiful gown. And then there was a happy ending, not just that she found the prince, which was, sort of the 1950s interpretation of Cinderella, but that she completed herself and she found a complete life. So we all know these stories, they come to us as children, but we forget that that's the journey. So that's really the first step. And then to begin to take apart the other pieces. So um, the second step is to quiet the inner critic, the negative voice in your head that tells you you're not good enough, that usually the abuser has taken up and somehow knows how to use that against you. And then connecting with the part of you, the happy person inside, that's step three, that's been untouched by all that's ever happened to you. They're like, everything, nothing has been, everything's been, no, no, part of you untouched. And then to take that part of you and start to vision. And, and I have a motivational model that begins to put in place positive energy, Visioning a new life, um, overcoming your fears. What's that? Those thoughts in your head that hold you back. Not things. Physical safety is a thing, but but uh, thoughts. Uh, I have a fear of rejection, fear of abandonment. How how can you talk yourself out of that? And then finally, to set some new goals. Um, and the women that come through my workshop tend to have goals, but they're stuck somewhere. Um, so get back to work. Get a better job. I have women who started their own business, started singing again, bought a, you know, bought a house, uh, gone back to school. So really those seven steps are a motivational model to get them moving again and to begin mostly to quiet down that negative voice in their head and to really, um, for many of them, start their life again, um, which has been interrupted by domestic violence, sexual assault, or has never really blossomed because of a long history of trauma. And that journey is really exciting to watch. It's sometimes transformational in front of my eyes. I can see their faces change, mm. their, whole, their whole being sort of like, I don't know, I guess it's like Sleeping Beauty, waking up um, to some idea that there's something else out, for the, out there for them. And they've been conditioned through maybe through years of trauma that there isn't anything good for them or that it's always going to be a struggle. And they can change that. I think what I enjoy the most is that you are actually seeing those people waking up. And then what I really um, appreciate as well is that 
opportunity for those women to actually sustain and reinforce that with those monthly sessions that you yeah. spoke of, because yeah. it is easy if the, if the journey is not linear, it is easy to slip back. And without the right support, we can spend more time than we like in some of those, those yeah. less than healthy. Uh, <laughs> right. Well, and also less productive, you know, it's like we want to be productive. Mostly living well is the best revenge. That's what I always say to them. The one thing, yeah, you're never going to get, that guy's probably not going to change. I mean, I've done, I, I, after Maggie was killed, I started doing, so I did for 15 years, I did offender groups with men who are arrested for domestic violence and, you know, bless their hearts. They're on their own journey and they've got a lot of trauma in their lives, but they're really, <laughs> really, they're really not going to change in many yeah. significant way. Not by the force of you, of your partner, as, as a partner. They may make their own internal changes and decisions, right. but um, even the criminal justice system can, usually can't push them through that. Um, so you're on your own here, and you can make decisions not only for yourself, but for your children. So to break that cycle, and it may be cycling through from your from your parents or grandparents, um, you know, other other relationships that you've seen have not been successful over the years. So yeah, it's really it's really that choice, and that choice is what I offer them. Um, and it's not an easy choice. I mean, I can't I can take them to the brink of it, but um, I think the thing also about my monthly program, and I was pretty clear about that when I started the workshops, that I didn't want to just have a two day workshop and say, oh, it's nice meeting you, thanks. I wanted to continue, and I think it's it's a it's first of all that they recognize now they're thrivers and now have a community around them mm -hmm. and they start to role model for each other. So I have had women in my group for 15, 20 years. And so if you come into my group now, it's like, oh, that's what it looks like 15 years from now. Look what she's been doing. And if she can do that, I can, I can start to think about my goals and use that energy. So I think it's finding women that have had a common experience um, a horrible experience and we don't try to, in fact, I don't have them tell their abuse story in my group. Um, I purposely do that so that we're not focused on that. Plus that will all make us cry and, and, and I get triggered really fast. Uh, so, um, uh, so it's, so it's, we start a new story. And so the story that they tell in the group is their success stories and how they've been able, as you said, Barbara, to, sustain that feeling and yes they do come once a month or we also have retreats and annual events and we have a holiday party um to, just to find that space and where it it's the judgment-free zone and there's no there's no comparisons the only thing we talk about is positivity and what's your success and and also go back over you know trying to uh, how do you manage your inner critic how do you how, how do you keep your goals going? I've been, I always have a vision session, visioning, vision board in January. So we set goals for each year and then try to set milestones and, and work together as a community. Um, they really like that. Um, they, and now that I'm doing it virtually, I have women from all over the country and even parts of the, I've had a woman from South Africa come on recently. So we're building an international community. For the months of October and November, I understand that you're offering your workshops free of charge for Domestic Violence Awareness Month. Can you talk more about that? Right. Well, the workshops are always free. I was really clear about that. This is not having worked with women, particularly coming through divorce. 
uh, even the wealthiest women that I worked with, although I used to work in that divorce, my divorce practice was actually legal aid. So most of my women didn't have a lot of money, but they don't have access to money. This is, this is not a luxury item. So they're always free. Um, I have a nonprofit that supports me. Um, and all my programs are free, even the follow-ups. And during October, it's important because one of the things that kind of, it's it's helpful that there's domestic violence awareness out there for people who need to know that and to support people. But it's also a difficult month for most of us because there's all this talk about it. So suddenly that, you know, the world's woken up and oh my gosh, um, and um, my niece was murdered in October, so which is, doesn't seem to be a coincidence in some way. I don't know how that works, but mm. um, so it really is an in intensive. So I do, I actually do the workshops four times a year. I do them twice in, once in October, November, twice in the fall, and then twice in the, in the spring, uh, in February and March. Um, and then I have workshops and I have uh, monthly follow-ups in between. Um, the workshop used to be in person and now I've been doing it virtually, which has been kind of interesting. Um, I still have been able to get the energy across. I think it's more energy that I transmit mm -hmm. than I, the words, although the words are communication, but it's the energy. They suddenly see somebody who's gone through something horrible and who's got energy and is taking that energy and helping them be productive. And free is important because I think if it's not free, I mean, I've worked in nonprofits my whole life, but the idea that there's some amount of money, it, it, for many of the women, it's between, do I come to a workshop that costs, it's gonna cost me X, even like $25, or do I feed my kid? Mm -hmm. So that's a choice that they have to make on a different level. So I free up that choice. And where do they find you? How do they sign up and register? So they can pre-register on my website, which is myavengingangel.com, or they can call the number that's also listed there. And it's a pretty simple process. It's a two-day workshop. It's two sessions. It's two Saturdays. It is not like one of those virtual workshops these days that you can sort of listen to when you're doing something else. It is an interactive workshop. Mm -hmm. And I do exercises. Uh, we do arts and crafts. I actually now, because I'm virtual, I do mail out materials, which they kind of like. It's like Christmas. You get a box mm. in the mail and there's mm. kinds of good stuff in it. So, so yeah, free is really important to me. And now that it's virtual, it's really been able to free them up from transportation issues or childcare issues or, or even just, you know, I got to get somewhere and I don't know how to get there. All the things that would hold you back a little bit. Virtual is also a little hard because they don't always have great technology available, but we know somehow we get to the middle there. So here's our call to action this week. It's for you to be aware of what the signs of domestic violence are. As Barb said, those wounds are not always physical and there are other things like controlling and checking your phone and doing all kinds of things. We'll make a post and put all of those pieces of awareness on our Facebook pages for you so that you can be aware and recognize. And if Susan, are there domestic violence awareness hotlines they can call if they're in immediate danger? Yeah, there's a national domestic violence hotline. If you if you Google it, it'll come up, it'll come up, they pop up. Um, they can not only do some crisis intervention stuff, but they can also tap into the resources. There are free programs throughout the country and throughout the world that do include shelters, although many women don't 
either go to a shelter or need a shelter, but they do crisis intervention, there's support groups, there's a whole lot of stuff before, in fact, many of the women that come to me have gone through those programs, mm -hmm. not only domestic violence, but sexual assault. So those are really important programs. They are free of charge and they are life-saving. There's no question about it. So National Domestic Violence Hotline will get you that information. Barb, is there one for Canada as well? I'm sure there is, and I will uh, have a look and make sure that that gets posted as well. Yeah, I, I do have a list of warning signs that I, I have posted on my website and I've used on a regular basis. So it's based on the Duluth model, um, which is one of the uh, domestic violence paradigms that was put together many years ago. I'm always reminded that there was a time in my life where there weren't domestic violence hotlines and domestic violence shelter, and we didn't have these warning signs. So it's really interesting, not only to know about it in your own personal life, but it might help a friend because sometimes right. it's the friend who's going to see it more than you're going to see it. One of the things that people, men who are abusive will do is isolate you from your family and friends mm -hmm. because they're the ones who are going to see it better than you. So it's also trying to help a friend. Um, and, and know that there's resources out there. Well, thanks for joining us today for this important topic. We'll see you next time. Less stress in life is possible. If you're new to this kind of thinking and would like to explore what's possible for you, we'd love to connect. You can reach us through our website at lessstressinlife.com. That's lessstressinlife.com.